Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi. Welcome to another episode of Gender Stories. I know I always say I'm excited, but I am generally so excited to be interviewing Dilo today for you all Gender Stories listeners and watchers now for those of you who are also watching on YouTube. Dilo is a queer, transgender, Tamil, Sri Lankan American actor, writer, and comic. He has toured his solo shows internationally, and his last show, To Tea or Not To Tea, was running last year at the Kirk Douglas Theatre in L.A. Acting credits include Looking, Transparent, Sense8, and Mr. Robot, Connecting, Quantum Leap, and Billy Eichner Movie Bros. He's a senior civic media, fil- media fellow through USC's Annenberg Innovation Lab, funded via the MacArthur Foundation. His work has been published and or written about in academic journals, literary anthologies, and print online journalism sources such as LA Times, The Guardian, NBC, CNN, and The Advocate. And I just feel so honored that you made some time for this interview today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I always love talking to people. And I don't know, I felt like we had too much in common you know what I'm talking about. So, you know, I was like, this is just off of that. I felt like this is someone I could trust with my heart. <laughs> oh my God. That means so much to me. I felt so good too. When we, because we met when doing this engendering love mm-hmm. thing, panel thing. And yeah, I felt that connection too. I felt so good to hear that. And then I saw you post something on Instagram about bidets. And I was like, I feel that so strongly too. And that's how we connected. I was like, let's do this. Let's get to know each other a little better. And let's also record a podcast episode. So thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. Well, so let's talk about actually the power of language and story, right? Because that's in a way, that's how we met was through sharing some of our experiences and stories. And, And I think that for um, many folks in minoritized communities, including trans community, queer communities, there is a real power to sharing our stories and sharing our voices in this way. So tell me a little bit more about, like, why is it so important for you to share your stories in all this beautiful different media as you do? Yeah, I think that um, for me, it started with me, my, my career started or my artistic pra- practice started in regards to the writing, because I was playing music before, but mm-hmm. in regards to writing, I was a poet. I still am a poet. Mm-hmm. And so, but the poetry when I was younger was really um, about larger issues like the state of our world, the state in our society, um, the police state, war uh, as a, mm-hmm. as sort of like a, you know, not just about the Sri Lankan civil war, but just, our civil wars here on this land and, um, you know, everything about queer issues to AIDS to, to everything, you know? And when I came out to my parents, um, like two months before I graduated college, 
I moved to New York and there were things that were happening to me, like on a heart level that I just didn't have an outlet for. And I was sitting there still doing the poems and the poetry, but I felt like I wanted to share more, not to the audience, but I was great. So I think I started by saying that it was very strange for me, especially like looking back to think that I was connecting with audiences on these bigger issues, like having a point of connection when in actuality, when I started writing about what was deeply personal and with specificity that I started having such a deep connection with my audiences because as one of my mentors and teachers says, uh, Shari Moraga, um, she says that, um, you know, the, the more details and specificity you provide in your story, the more universal it becomes. And it's such an interesting thing, right? Like yes. you and I probably have less in common outside of our queerness and queerness can be a blanket mm-hmm. because we all know that there's so many different ways of being queer. And yet, we will be able to connect based off of the hours, the specificities in our stories. Those little hidden Mm -hmm. gems that are there are where there's deeper points of connection. So, um, so that's, that's when I realized, um, the power of storytelling from a very personal space and that the personal is Mm -hmm. political and, and vice versa. And that, um, and that you could, storytell in a way that changes people like literally rocks them on such a deep foundational level that they are changed the minute that they leave that space with you, you know? So I am interested in that kind of power um, and, and, and empowering people to, to be desirous of that kind of power as well, you know? Um mm-hmm. You know, we, we oftentimes talk about how, you know, like representation matters. Like it does, it does, it does, it does. And I'm not saying anything to like naysay against mm-hmm. that, you know. Um, but I think that our freedom is most important. Our personal freedom is most important. And we can get free as a collective, you know. So I think that story is the binding agent in that, that I know that it's like the, it's the thing that I use to create collective healing. I love that. I'm getting chills actually, as you're talking about this, because as you were saying that I was thinking, yeah, this common threads of our humanity, right. Mm -hmm. That we can weave together for the power of story. You know, I'm thinking about, um, Everything Everywhere uh, All at Once. Did I remember the title correctly? It was such an amazing movie, right? Totally far from my experience as a Southern Italian person who's moved first to the UK and then to Italy, right? But there was so many things that I felt deeply connected to. And then my oldest kid was like, I need to watch this movie with you, mom, you know? And we're watching this movie and we're holding hands and we're crying, you know? And again, the no shared identities be- mm-hmm. in terms of an Asian American experience, but there were threads of connection around like, you know, intergenerational trauma and parenting and just, just, yes, there were so many threads that we could still connect to. And it is transformative when we can connect across 
you know, um, across differences, but also kind of things that bring us together as humans. Yes. I don't know. It's a, such a weird, complex dance for it me is, always. It <laughs> is. This is a very magical thing. It is a very magical thing because, you know, you sometimes you go in and you don't expect to connect. Exactly. And that's the thing. We, we don't expect to connect because we're fearful of the opposite of what that is, right? Like we're fearful for mm-hmm. the disconnection, for the violence, for this, that, and yes. other. And that's why I think it's so magical because a single point can do either or. And yet more often than not, if you're dealing with somebody who's not like, maybe is like, even if you're dealing with somebody who's like, a, a little bit of an asshole, there still might be an opening to which that person might be able to grab onto your, your, your story and vice versa, you know? So. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I know that I found connection unexpectedly with people where I thought we've got nothing in common. And then I've actually found disconnection with people where I thought, Oh, we must have so much in common, right? Mm-hmm. You can, I don't know. For me, you can never tell. And I love what you said that you, it's not just about your story. You also help people tell their stories, right? You've done workshops to really help people, um, learn how to tell their story or bring the story out. So tell me about what drew you to that, to kind of wanting to work with people and helping them tell their own stories as well. Yeah. I think that I kind of got pulled into doing workshops when I was touring the college university circuit Mm -hmm. and based off of whatever I was learning, I would sort of incorporate some things and then add my own sort of twist to things. But in the more uh, like more specific types of workshops that I do, the main reason why I wanted to do those is because it was, there were situations in which I was dealing with, um, not dealing with, but hearing a lot of stories around people's mental health decline Mm -hmm. and um, rates of death by suicide. So Mm -hmm. these were reasons for me to be like, let me just do these and see what happens, you know? And, um, you know, sometimes with like, this is just an example, but, you know, one of the organizations I worked with, Satarang, is a South Asian queer organization that has been organizing in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles for 25 years, you know, and um, they would have these parties and everybody would come out to them and it would be like, a big Bollywood or something like that, something very Indian, South Asian or North, North, Northern Indian. Right. Or you know what I'm talking about? So I would come there as a, as a first generation American. Right. And not really know how to connect with these folks. Right. And I was like, Oh, you know, I would just come to support, but I didn't really love the music. I didn't Mm -hmm. get it. It wasn't my part of my culture. Right. And then um, I I kept going to these just as a supporter, just as somebody who would, you know, knew that there were like brown folks, queer folks, 
party. And at these parties, I would see like people walling out. Like it was almost like that amount of freedom to just be queer and brown and open about it and just let letting go of everything was almost too much freedom. It was almost like we had people like either getting really drunk or like, you know, different things like that. And so I was like, there's something clearly missing here if we're not able to provide another sort of space outside of the party mm-hmm. space. And I brought the idea of the workshop to the organizers and everybody's like, I oh, don't know. I don't know. And every, you know, like, and I said, look it, you don't have to pay me for this first go around. Let me just do it. And sure enough, it was like such a beautiful, deep, profound experience. And I made all of the workshop participants uh, invite people they normally would not invite to to this public reading, right? So we had people coming in that room that were probably haters or people who were coworkers and didn't know that their friend was queer or whatever. And they were all mobbed up. We had over a hundred people in this joint and story by story we shared and it changed like what was happening in that room changed people like they were getting their freedom, you know? And then, and then that word of it got around and whatever. And it was actually like people who usually went to the parties who actually came to the reading that were like, Oh my God, I didn't realize I I needed to be here. And then they would sign up for the workshop, the next go around, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that it's a, it's a sad thing. And I brought this up on that panel that we were on, but you cannot quantify Mm -hmm. the impact of community-based artists and these, and these types of workshop settings. And so you really aren't ever going to get the full scope of how profound these experiences are. Like it's arts making, it's writing. It's a process. It's a decolonial process that is occurring in the, like it's happening strategically because I'm the facilitator, but it's also just mm-hmm. happening on a, on a deep level just by con- the converging of people, you know? And mm-hmm. so, um, sorry, I don't mean to talk so long, but I'm saying no, that please do. These, mm-hmm. th- this kind of thing is what, like, it makes me so sad that we can't, use metrics to prove that these things are life-changing, truly transformative experiences, you know? Um, And not just for me, you know, because recently I haven't really been teaching the courses. I I have a lot of mentees, but, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, to, to do this work, it's easier for me to, to walk with a mentee I don't, I'm not getting paid. They might buy me lunch or a coffee. Do you get what I'm saying? And it's more sustainable for me than it is to actually do the workshops with no money. Yeah. You know, absolutely. So, um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, that's, that's my two cents. (laughs) I I mean, it's a beautiful two cents. (laughs) (laughs) That's a beautiful two cents, you know, and uh, it's just that, Oh, but you were talking, I was thinking about how much healing that brings, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a therapist in terms of what I do with my day job. And um, 
one thing that keeps, uh, you know, hitting me is just how finally kind of Western traditional psychotherapy is catching up to healing traditions, right? Because mm. I really feel like the therapists were part of, we're just the latest manifestation of healers, you know, under this capitalist yes white supremacist world, but really people need healing, you know, and, and actually what's happening now is that we're coming back full circle in some ways in the, there's this interest in somatic and art and bringing the body, you know, and I was like, of course, you know, this is, you know, I didn't grow up in a therapy culture where I got my healing was through community, Worship. Then, of course, it got problematic because, right, it was an exclusionary worship for me as a trans queer person. But moving together, singing with people, dancing with people. And then when I came out as queer, where I got my healing was dancing at the club. It was also problematic because people were also trying to find their healing through alcohol and substance mm -hmm. use. Mm -hmm. But I found a lot of my healing through connecting, through dancing and moving and or Queer choir, you know, mm -hmm. those are the ways we feed our soul, right? Uh, poetry readings, all of that. So I'm like, mm -hmm. as you we were talking, I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry, that was a long comment on your oh, two cents, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. We touched just a little bit, like you mentioned representation, right? We started with the power of story, but there's also this power of representation. And you have been in kind of a number of like shows and uh, as well as doing your own solo work. Um, why do you think it's important for you as a, you know, Tamil Sri Lankan American trans queer actor to be out there and be visible? Um, and for more and more diverse representation, because in a way I feel like 20 years ago, you know, with trans people, it was like the Highlander syndrome that can only be one, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're finally in a place where maybe that can be like, a few of us in a show, no. right? Uh, lately, somebody was like, we need the Alison Bechdel test, but for trans people, you know, mm -hmm. are there several trans people? Do they have names? Are they talking to each other? Are they there not just to like die or be like yeah. a plot point? You know what I mean? So yeah, tell me a bit about your thoughts about representation um, from your point of view as somebody who is an actor and who's out there representing in some ways. Yeah, I... Um... I feel that the more stories we have out there, the better. And in this conversation around representation, it's also like, I'm not happy with just any kind of representation. Like I need it to be specifically like, like mindfully done. Right. Mm. And I think that, Hollywood, bless Hollywood's heart, might not get it right the majority of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we fight to have more truer um, representation. And I, I'm saying all of this stuff as sort of like a preface to the fact that like I've been in this game and I was, um, you know, right when the beginning of that trans wave started about 10 years ago, yep. um, was doing a lot around representation and whatnot. And I have had the hardest time in this industry landing yeah. an agent or representation. Um, I've had some here and there, but um, the only 
work that I felt like I could put out there and and do it on my own name and is is my is my own personal work, right? Like anything else that was bigger than that was scripted would take a lot more money, and it has. I've I've definitely doled out enough of my own money to to do things. Um, I I know that there is a lane to do that, but it's very few people who are on that path even now. And the yes. amount of power they wield is even less. And it typically is in the hands of a lot of white uh, queer mm-hmm. people, right? Yep. And so, um, and, and I'm not mad at that because I have a lot of friends, acquaintances, uh, colleagues that are all, um, you know, that are white and trans or white and queer and they're, they're making headway, you know, and I'm so grateful for that. But I think that when, when I like, I think recently, because I've been in a, in a lot of conversations around representation, mm-hmm. I don't mind that there are people who are not trans or queer who are collaborating with me on stories that uplift marginalized voices. I don't, they don't need to be only um, queer. They don't need to be mm-hmm. only, uh, I mean, in, in my heart, I want to constant, this is me, this is just me, but I only want to be creating with other BIPOC folks. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. um, but I'm not opposed to collaborations that are, um, that, that, that need a special eye that maybe I'm not getting within my own circles. Sorry, I'm going to go off tangent. I, I'm going to okay. try and stay on tangent. Do they say that? <laughs> Who knows? Um, I don't know. You can but, go on or off wherever you want. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I think that when we, when I've been having these conversations about re- representation, I, what I really want to say is, representation matters and it also is not the only thing that matters. Um, Mm -hmm. It matters if it's done in a way that is really like able to penetrate and change things or empower people. And it's not just about sticking one, like you said, as the plot line or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. We, we joked on one panel that we're, we want to see shows where there's more than one trans or queer, trans queer mm-hmm. person. Um, and then I thought, well, why don't we take all the characters that are just the one trans person on the show and then create a show around their individual <laughs> characters on another show? Um, but, but where I want to land with this question is, again, mm-hmm. back to personal freedom. Yes. I think that we have to pick and choose our battles and some battles are done on an industry level and some battles are done on a community-based level and some battles are taking place from within our hearts. And I think that the, the, if we, if everybody's like, I need to see me in that medium and then I'm not going to be, otherwise I won't see myself in the way that I want to be seeing myself, then that's the biggest problem. Yes. is that what we ingest doesn't necessarily have to come from that. Like I know for me, what I ingested came from stage and from the page, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in that way, I think that representation all across the board matter, but it's not just who we're seeing on the screen. 
I know that that's so important, but it's not just that, you know? Oh, absolutely. It cannot be the be all and an end all. And like you said, also representation is like, what kind of representation, right? Mm -hmm. Is it intentional? Is it mindful? Is it transformative? You know, you talked about the transformative power of story, right? Is it stereotypical or is it transformative? Is it, you know, and also who's writing those characters, right? It's not just the actors, but who's in the writing room. Yes. Um, I mean, those four writing rooms, everybody's on strike at the moment, but I think yeah. still on strike, right? Yeah. <laughs> I've lost track of news lately, but um, you know, it's so complex, you know, yeah, because otherwise you get visibility and being targeted for that visibility without that change, which I think in some way we're seeing in trans community right now, right? There was that tipping point, you know, Laverne Cox on the cover of Time, all of those, those beautiful things, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s, I've definitely seen trans and queer people you know, be much more visible in ways than I ever expected potentially in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I've also seen the backlash on that, yeah, you know, exactly. and also like then who suffers the most, right? They're mm -hmm. going to be the folks in our community who have the least access and the least privilege. And so it becomes, I don't know, it's complicated as it many things are in life. I'm so happy that there is so much more representation and I'm like, mm -hmm. but what are we doing for our people on a deep level, you know? Exactly. Like, how is this, how is this helping if we're already on the margins, but then there's even margins within that margin, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so who when, gets to be at the center? Yeah. Who gets to be in the center? And so that's why I'm always like personal freedom, personal freedom, because it's personal freedom to me before I used to hear that. And I'd be like, well, how does that attach to the rest of the world? And then I realized, oh, no, this attaches to the rest of the world in such a profound way. Because, again, it's when we are healing in community. It's when we're creating in community. It's when we're like, then we become the healthiest, right? And then and then the, the ripple effect is grand, you know? Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Oh, I feel like there, I feel like there's 500 tangents in my head and that's okay. Uh, that often happens. Um, but talking about those kind of personal story, the personal freedom, I do want to touch on your latest, I think it's your latest solo show, right? Mm -hmm. To tea or not to tea. And yeah, what is that about? You know, I, I'm not in California, so I didn't get to see it, yeah. but I bet it was yeah. awesome. So yeah, tell us about that show, why you wrote it what it means to you, all of that good stuff. Yeah. Tati or not Tati was a solo show, second of a trilogy around, um, you know, what my reflections on taking tea, the choices that I made to take mm -hmm. tea or, or the decision process behind that. But also like, you know, what does beautiful masculinity look like? Um, we're, we always throw around toxic masculinity, but it's kind of like, okay, like that's just patriarchy. Like that's in the yeah. ether. Anybody can be a toxic masculine person. Yeah. But, but what does beautiful masculinity mean? Kind of flips it for the people who proudly ID as masculine and, or a blend or whatever, but some mm -hmm. kind of masculinity and say, okay, like, what is this? What does this look like for me? So, um, I kind of talk about like, you know, growing up and my, the, the sort of understanding of masculinity that I had via TV and my culture and the culture that I also, mm -hmm. my artistic, um, community. And then I go into, 
um, you know, my journey into uh, not into feminism, but as a feminist, because I feel like a lot of people, you know, I remember when I first said this, but I feel like one of my first feminist teachers was Queen Latifah. And mm-hmm. this was as a young kid in the eighties, listening to um, her lyrics as an MC, you know? And so fast forward to me learning from these very incredible scholars slash artists, you know, these, these feminist scholars that wrote the bridge call on my back and, you know, mm-hmm. other, other beautiful books and poet poetry books. But when I talked to these very same people in these communities and, and as I was a part of these women's circles, I was, I was like right before millennial. And so what happens is that I started getting this messaging, like, you don't want to be a man. Like, why would you want to do that? Like men are what's wrong with this world and et cetera, et cetera. So I drank enough of that to not really think that I had, um, a decision to, you know, like that I had decision-making power because I was like, why do I want to do this? Am I turning my back on women and feminists and whatever? And, and this, and where I land is that, you know, I have to do what it is. I'm the only person who is living in this reality with this, with my past histories, you know, twirling around Mm -hmm. in my brain and in my heart. And if this is what I want to just kind of see, if this could be something for me, then I'm going to try that and throw it back at these feminists who probably didn't mean to be turfy, but accidentally were um, and say, isn't, feminist men, what you've always wished for, you know, and just leave it at that. Like I get the optics. I get that masculine women and people who are seen as masculine women are, are like examples of a fuck you, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but it's like, at what cost our queer peoples, we have such like already we're like, oh yeah, we're challenging gender norms and da, 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 da. But we still have a very binary way of looking at gender. And it's just the same way that we do a lot of things. And so um, meaning that it's just in the ether, we smell it and like it's in, yeah. it's there affecting us. And so I, um, my work recently has been around the intersections of mental health and masculinity, queerness, of course, but um, you know, what what kind of um, invisibilization happens as you transition? Um, the flip side of visibility, and how are we like? Are we just an again being subsumed into this community of people, and then our needs are not ever brought to light? Like. Like a lot of butch or stud mm-hmm. or masculine of center or AG or whoever you want to call it, mm-hmm. our needs weren't put up at the very top because we were being good lovers of femmes and women, you know? Yeah. And so all of our shit just gets tucked under someplace else and we have to try and figure that out. And yet we're not because, again, patriarchy, we're not talking to each mm-hmm. other, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. This is the work that I'm trying to do right now. I have this project as sort of like a a next step to this. It's not a solo based piece, but it's called Cry With You or The Uncle's Project in which 
myself and um, I've already prototyped it once just with me, but what I dream of is having a whole bunch of men of color from the whole gender spectrum to offer to hold space for other people um, as a public installation or a busking project. And so that piece is, you know, the question that's framing this piece is why can't men be seen as nurturers or as safe spaces? And so kind of throwing back the onus of our, our own people to take care of one another, right? Um, because, and, and not have the, the, uh, burden of caretaking to be on the shoulders of femmes and women all the time. Oh, that is so beautiful. And, and also it just kind of, um, oh, I have so many feelings and thoughts, uh, listening to you talking about that. Cause, um, you know, having been brought up as a second wave feminist, you know, um, I work so hard, like, oh, is this my, you know, internalized misogyny? You know, I wanted to really celebrate and embrace my femininity. Coming out was really hard. It took me into my, you know, early 30s to finally be like, ah, I'm definitely genderqueer, mm-hmm. you know, on the masculine end of the spectrum, but I'm also on a very effeminate masculinity. You know, mm-hmm. I, the way I explained it to my mom was having a hard time understanding what was happening, honestly, with my sexuality and gender. I was like... You know, mom, if I'd been born a cis boy, I would be one of those cis boys who were like into musicals and Barbies mm-hmm. and like super queer and who couldn't hide their queerness. That's my, it's still masculinity, mm-hmm. but it's also there is a, when I think when masculine people are nurturing, caring is seen as almost stripping away the masculinity, right? Because yeah. there is so much. Um, you know, what we call overcappling in somatic therapy of like femininity with nurturance, right? So uh-huh. if a masculine person is nurturing, then that almost strips away yeah. their masculinity. It's so messed up. I know. Um, you know, and it's so um, traumatic, right? Uh, it's so traumatic. And it's, book so, about it. <laughs> it's so basic. It's so yes. basic. Yes. Like, what are we doing here? Right. I love that this Mother's Day, you know, I got this sweet text from my oldest kid was uh, and the stories I share about her with her consent was almost 20, you know, and it was like, uh, happy Mother's Day to my two dads. Right. Because it's (laughs) like we always talk about being a mom is like a job. And actually, you know, like the Michael Piran, who is a cis man, uh, is much more of a mom than I ever Mm -hmm. was. You know, I'm much more like the fun, rough and tumble, but also like provider type of person, Mm -hmm. you know, in my family. Uh, So much more like traditionally masculine role, despite Mm -hmm. like my effeminate masculinity, whereas my cis male partner is definitely the mom, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard for him to be away from home and family. And the first time he had to be separated from the baby was really hard, you know. Uh Uh, He was a stay-at-home parent for a few years, but... um, you know, and on one hand, people are like, oh, that is so beautiful. And on the other hand, I'm like, but that often is not what is wanted. I also see how people move around that, mm-hmm. right? The confusion and the challenge and the, like you said, you know, wasn't a point of having feminist men. But then when you get feminist men, often there is so much suspicion. There is yeah. so much pushback. There's so much like you're not man enough, whatever mm-hmm. that means, right? I don't know. I see. So, yeah. yes. 
And then uh-huh. when you layer all the other complexity of racializations, no, it's never just about gender, right? right. It's never just about where gender right. is also about we're racialized, whether we're disabled or not, whether, mm-hmm. you know, um, what the class status is, all that kind of stuff. It just gets so messy. And yes, yeah, so yes. simple, like you said, so simple. It's it, it it's to me it's it's so simple, but when I say it's so basic, I'm also saying like it's you're you're make you're trivializing the complexities and the depth in which people can exist, you know? Like Yes. Why why is it that when men uh show nurturing side that they're stripped of their being mm-hmm. seen as masculine? then that's not even about uh, somebody having autonomy and how they even see their own masculinity. Mm -hmm. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that, like you said, is that personal freedom that it's also collective freedom, right? Mm Because we can let ourselves be ourselves and, and let other people be themselves. Then there is a collective freedom in that of expansiveness Mm -hmm. and choice and beauty you know, mm-hmm. I love that you talked about beautiful masculinity because I think that's that authenticity, that vulnerability is beautiful. And in a way, it's really denied in a lot of way for for a lot of masculine folks. And yeah. I think for masculine folks of color in lots of different ways. And yeah. it's yeah, it is so so simple, so complex, <laughs> so basic, so foundational, all at the same time. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. So I know. You know, we're kind of going a little bit all over the map, but I think there's also a little bit of a theme around around freedom, about expansion, about around beauty as well, right? The beauty of transformation, the beauty of story. So I'm curious about nowadays, you know, we're living through yet another moment. And I say yet another moment because this is not the first time in history and unfortunately won't be the last, right, where we're seeing... a um, really heightened, you know, transphobia, really heightened queerphobia. I'm hearing some discourse I hadn't heard for some time, right? Um, Being our community, um, being labeled as groomers and all this really ugly things that, you know, have been used again and again around against people uh, and against queer people, especially. So how do you find that beauty and joy in your everyday life nowadays? Because I've been really curious about how we as a community are also finding rest and beauty and joy to be able to get through yet yet another time, like I said. Great question. I was just doing a show this morning for um, a group and the title of it was called Queer Joy. And I know I talk about queer joy a lot as a comic, but I often like for me, queer joy and joy in general, where I find it is like with my beloveds, I'm going to always talk about community and people because that's my number one love, you know? Um, Yes. um, Outside of bidets. And so (laughs) that's fair. (laughs) I feel there's a connection there. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All collectively use a bidet at the same time, then, you know, life would be perfect. Um, So, so I feel like um, for me, outside of, you know, my people, it's Mm -hmm. my people in nature, my 
like being in nature, you know, doing things like that, right? But you mentioned this thing about like, we're in this moment in time that is like so hard. And I know that I'm in a safe state, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. but I can't imagine the depths of the trauma occurring in people's hearts um, right now, because for me, as old as I am, my internalized transphobia and queerphobia are like hitting these mm-hmm. heights because yeah. I'm also listening to people spew this stuff. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, like, and it's making me go all sorts of different places. And I almost have to snap myself out of it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, what? Is it if, if this is happening to me in a safe state as somebody who's outwardly like, you know, I'm out there being outspoken about stuff, then that means that people who are even like me are also dealing with this to some degree. Right. Yeah. And I think and so what I was telling everybody is I was like, I think that this is pride. Yes, this is pride month. And we're all like, you know, but. I think it's more important than ever before because we assume that things have gotten better. So that's why it's even more important to yes. pick up the phone and call people and tell them without you, I wouldn't have been challenged in this way, or I know myself mm-hmm. more because of this. And I appreciate the way you walk in this world. And do you get what I'm saying? Like yes. those little touch points to people who, are unsung heroes who should really be sung heroes all day, every day, you know? Yeah. Because it takes courage to be who you are every damn day. And I think that that's something that mm-hmm. you might not know for yourself. That's something that I don't know for myself. Do you get what I'm saying? But oh, it yeah. takes courage to just be who you fucking are every day. And so I feel like that's the antidote to not having joy is to remember joy in, in the reflections of ourselves, right? Which are other people, mm-hmm. our community, our best friends, our chosen yeah. family, you know, um, sometimes our families of origin, but generally not, <laughs> you know, they're trying, they're trying now yeah. more than ever. They're doing their best. They're doing <laughs> their best. But yeah, like that's, that to me is, you know, I find joy in my, my young little, nieces and nephews like I find but it's always about like that energy and that joy that is like it's there it's palpable between two bodies or a group of bodies you know and that to me is what that joy is revolutionary it's what keeps me alive you know on all the different levels you know I really hear that. Sometimes people are like, how are you still doing? Are you still engaging in community at over 50? A lot of people like, you know, just drift away from organizing or drift away from community engagement as we get older. And I'm like, because I don't know how to live without community. I need that. You know what I mean? It's like, I need my elders. I also need my younger people to learn from and call me on my bullshit, which they Mm -hmm. do, thankfully. And I thank them every time, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I I don't know how not 
to like, this is how I survived as a queer person. Yeah. Right? This is how like, aren't relationships everything? Like how, yeah. what else is there? You yeah. know, if not relationships with our kin, like which mm-hmm. is people and as well as nature, the green bloods, right? As, uh, yes. Oh. Yes. Well, and on that note, because I know you've got another engagement to go on to, I just want to express my gratitude for your wisdom and beauty and time today, but also just generally about the beautiful work you create and how you move through the world. And just I'm so grateful for this connection that we found and, and for spending a little bit more time together today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. I had the best time. I think we're pretty much the same person. <laughs> Same person with just different histories, different experiences, exactly. but I love it. I love it. I can't wait to share more stories. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. All right. For thank today, you. I'm going to say goodbye and thank you to your listeners for, um, for listening, for watching if you're on YouTube. As ever, let me know what you think uh, about the episode. Subscribe. Do your rating, do your thing, and thank you for spreading uh, and spread joy in your life, in your community, in your relationship. Until next time. Uh